Our text today in 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11 concludes the main body of the first epistle of Peter. What remains in verses 12, 13, and 14 is a postlude, a valuable postlude, and we will take some time in looking at that next week and perhaps, though not for certain, the week beyond. But for all practical purposes, the epistle concludes with the end of verse 11, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And what we have in our text today is, first of all, in verse 10, something of a benediction, and in verse 11, a doxology. A benediction benediction is the pronouncement of a desire or a wish or a prayer for God's blessing. And we see that in verse 10. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That is essentially a benediction. Verse 11 is a doxology, a statement of praise to God. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And yet, however, in a close examination of verse 10, we find that this is really more of a promise than a benediction. Because more accurately, what this is saying is not, may God, may the God of all grace, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, but more accurately, it is a promise, God will perfect, strengthen, establish you. This is what God is going to do. And yet it still remains for us in the form, basically, of a benediction. A recurrent theme throughout First Peter, as you know, has been the theme of suffering. God's people suffer. Peter wrote to suffering Christians in the first century. Peter writes to us today to suffering Christians in the 21st century. God spoke to suffering Christians in the first century through Peter's epistle. God speaks to us today through His Word inspired by His Spirit to Christians in the 21st century. And all God's people suffer to a greater or lesser extent in this world, some more than others, of course, but all to a measurable and significant degree. And Peter has given us a lot of information, a lot of help, regarding our sufferings, but he now concludes his epistle with a strong note of hope and assurance for all of God's people who are sure to suffer. And that today is you and me. And if you do not feel that you are suffering today, wait until tomorrow or the day after, because you surely will. There's no question about it. And so our sermon today from 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11 is entitled Promise for Sufferers, or actually Promises, plural, for Sufferers. Let's begin by noting who made the promises, because this is of greatest importance. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We first and primarily focus upon God, which is where all of our focus should continually run And this is where we're going to find help and encouragement in our sufferings and nowhere else. 
The word order of verse 10 differs in various translations. Some put the information about God's people earlier in the verse, and then this uh, description of God and what he will do uh, all in the last part of the verse. But actually, the word order, as I find it in my New King James, actually parallels the order that is found in the Greek Testament. And it begins with God. It also begins with the word but, that could be translated moreover, but however you translate it, it is a Greek particle that connects what this says with what has gone before. And those little connecting words are always important. And Peter has, as I say, made reference to suffering a great deal in this epistle. He says, however, but in spite of all of that suffering, which you are undergoing and will yet undergo in this life, but I want to say this to you before I conclude. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. In fact, you could connect it immediately to what has been said about our adversary, the devil, in verse 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but the God of all grace who called us to his eternal, his eternal glory, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You who are beleaguered by the devil. You who are suffering because of the devil's attacks. You can be assured that God is going to come to your aid in the way that is described in verse 10. And who is it who made these promises? He is first of all, referred to as the God of all grace. That's who's going to help us. The God of all grace. Grace, as we know, is unmerited favor. God does not come to our aid because we deserve His aid. God is not promising to come to our help because we have done something to attract His kindness and to earn it. That's not true for sinners. Salvation is by grace. That's not true for saints. All of our blessings, all of our help, all that God does for us as His children is by grace. We need to nail that down and understand it. It is by unmerited favor. Grace is divine enablement directed to our point of need. What is your need? Where is your need? That's exactly where God directs His grace, His divine enablement. It is directed precisely to your point of need. The God of all grace. What a wonderful phrase. This is the only time that particular phrase is found in the New Testament it's very similar to another title or description of God that is given to us by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.3 where he calls God the God of all comfort. Isn't that a particularly encouraging phrase to describe the God that we know, the God who has made himself known to us? He is the God of all comfort and he is the God of all grace. 
I think that phrase, God of all comfort, helps us to understand what Peter means when he calls him the God of all grace. What does it mean for God to be the God of all comfort? Well, whatever it may mean, surely it must mean, number one, that he is the source of comfort, and number two, that he is the bestower of comfort. Whatever comfort we need is found in him. He's the source of it. We need to look to him for it. But he's not reluctant. He is the bestower of all comfort, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, as Paul goes on to say. And it's the same idea here. He's the God of all grace. What does that mean? He's the source of all grace, and he's the bestower of all grace. He has all the grace, all the enablement that is needed, and far more than is needed, actually. And he is eager to bestow it upon his dear children. He's the God of all grace. He is, secondly, the God who called you. The God who called you. May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory. When we are suffering, sometimes we are tempted to think that we have been forsaken by God. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? It's important to remind us that that is not so, that cannot be so, that can never be so. And one reason we know that is so is because this is the God who called us. Far from rejecting us, this is the God who reached down to us in our impossible situation, our blindness, our spiritual death, and called us to himself by his grace, by his power. He desired to make us his children. And he did so. He called us to himself. It is the effectual call. It is the result of God's eternal election, his electing grace. God, who set his love upon us in eternity past, has reached down through the corridors of time. And by the Spirit of God, he has awakened us to life and called us to himself, called us to faith in Christ Jesus. That's the God who made these promises, the God who called us. The God who delivered us from the dismal past and who is now directing us to a glorious future. It reminds me of what Paul said. If God spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? If God has done that for us, how would he fail to do some lesser thing for us? If God loved us enough to give us his son, then how would he fail to come to us in our time of need? If God called us to himself, if he chose us to be his eternal children, then how would he fail to come to us and give us what we need in our time of suffering, our time of extremity? And so the God who made these promises is the God of all grace. The God who made these promises is the God of eternal glory. The God or the God who called us, the God who made these promises is number three, the God of eternal glory. Who called us to or unto his eternal glory. Peter intends a contrast between our 
temporary suffering and the eternal glory to follow. Are you suffering now? Many of you no doubt are. All of us are in some ways. There's no question about it. Are you suffering now? Of course you are. That is the lot of all who inhabit this fallen world, this world under the curse of sin, plunged into sin by Adam's fall. If we inhabit this earth, of course we are suffering. But that is temporary. What is coming is eternal. And it's eternal glory. And that's the realm that really counts because that is forever. Our sufferings are comparatively short. Eternity is unimaginably long. It is forever. And therefore, when you contrast the sufferings of this present life with the glory that shall be revealed hereafter, what what are these sufferings but just a small, small drop in the bucket of our eternal existence with Christ? They will seem so small, so insignificant in that day when the Lord returns and we are with him forever. These sufferings are not only, or this glory rather, is not only endless, but it is imperishable. It must be if it's going to be endless. Everything we know in this world, it it decays, it perishes, it doesn't stay the same. We are constantly frustrated by things that that give promise and then they fade away. But that's the nature of the world in which we live. But the glory of God is eternal. Nothing about that glory will ever end, will ever be diminished in the slightest degree. It will not only last forever, it will be glorious forever. And what is glory? Well, the glory of God is His divine perfections. The splendor that surrounds Him is really just a reflection of who He is, His perfect character, His perfect attributes. That is His glory. But because He is such a glorious God, He is surrounded by glory. And when we are brought into glory, we too will be surrounded by glorious perfections that abound in the presence of a perfect and glorious God. That's all that that is there in His presence. That's all that can be there in His presence. There can be nothing that does not fit the category of glory, of divine perfections. That's what awaits us. That's what God has called us to. His eternal glory. And who is the God who has made this promise? He's the God who gave us His Son. The God who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. This glory of God belongs to Jesus Christ by right, for He is God. And though He laid aside His glory to come to earth, nevertheless He took up again His glory in His exaltation. And that glory belongs to Him. He has all the glory of the infinite Almighty God, because that's who He is. But that glory becomes ours when we are in Christ. It is ours too. We inherit it with Him. We are 
joint heirs with Christ, we share in His glory in a way that we really cannot fully understand. But we are in Christ only because God gave Christ to us. We are in Christ because God called us and placed us in Christ, in the Christ that He gave to live the sinless life that we were required to but did not live, and died that ignominious death that was our just punishment, but He took in our place. And having given us His Son to deal with our sins so that we might stand perfectly justified before a holy God, having given us such a Savior as this, and calling us into glory to share it with His own Son, how could God then fail to minister to our present needs? That's what Peter is arguing here. He is telling us, don't forget who is the God who made these promises. What a wonderful God. But the second question is, to whom are the promises made? And of course, that's more quickly and easily answered. Peter says, after you have suffered. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered. The promises are made to followers of Christ, to you. Those to whom this epistle is written. Go back and read the beginning and you'll find out. It is made to followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is written to them. It is to you if you are a believer in Christ. That's to whom these very promises are made. It is to you who are suffering. You, after you have suffered. You cannot study Peter's first epistle without becoming very aware of the fact that Peter is writing to people who, for the most part, were suffering when he wrote. He doesn't tell us exactly what the nature of these sufferings are. They may, may very well have been political persecutions or persecutions by, by uh, Jews who were incensed at their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They may have been various deprivations, locks of, of property, lack of jobs, lack of the necessities of life, the, the normal necessities of life. We don't know in what ways they were suffering. We just know that they were suffering. And Peter writes to them and has a lot to say to them about suffering. But he's writing to all of God's children who are suffering for whatever reason. We are not in the exact same historical moment and geographical location as Peter's readers. And so we may not be suffering in exactly the same way, though there may come a time when we shall suffer in a similar fashion. But we're all suffering in one way or another. And this is written to you if you are suffering. This is written to you if you have ever suffered. This is written to you if you will ever suffer, which you will until you are called home to glory. And so these promises are made to you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. But thirdly, and more importantly, what has God promised? May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. What has God promised? 
Well, first of all, and we've already touched on it, God has promised that our sufferings are temporary. They are not permanent. They are temporary. After you have suffered. After you have suffered. So Peter is writing to people who are now suffering. He tells them that something's going to take place after their sufferings are over, when the sufferings are in the past. After you have suffered, your sufferings are temporary. They have a God-appointed termination. And that word a while also emphasizes the same truth. (coughs) After you have suffered a while, or maybe more literally, a little while. A little while. The same thing we already pointed out. Our sufferings are only for a little while. Now, in terms of our earthly experience, sometimes they seem to be quite long, don't they? But that's only relative to what we have have so far experienced in this life. But in the light of eternity, in the light of the future, in the light of the day of Christ's coming... In the light of the day when we will be with the Lord, our sufferings, no matter how long they may have been, if you have been suffering all of your life, and indeed, in some ways, we all have, in ways perhaps that is not always clear to us, but if you have been conspicuously and consciously suffering all of your life, it is nevertheless relatively short. And that's said not to minimize the extent of your suffering. Oh, if you only knew how much I've suffered. Don't you try to, to talk me out of it. Don't you try to minimize it. Don't you try to belittle it and talk like it's not a big deal. This is not said in order to belittle or minimize the extent of your sufferings, but it is said to encourage you to realize that there is a promise, the promise of Almighty God that these sufferings will end, and when they do, you will look back on this and say, That wasn't anything. Why did I make such a big deal about it at the time? Why did I allow it to to, uh, claim so much of my emotional strength and energy? It really wasn't all that much after all. It seemed like it at the time, but it really turns out not to be. God promises that. That's part of the promise here. What has God promised? God has promised that our sufferings are temporary. Don't let the devil persuade you otherwise. Don't let the devil cause you to doubt God's promise. Don't let the devil cause you to believe that your sufferings are forever. They are interminable. No, they are temporary. And that temporary is short. It's a little while. What has God promised? Number two, he's promised that our sufferings are purposeful. They have a purpose, an important purpose. And how do we know that? Because they were appointed by God. And because of the nature of God, God does nothing without a purpose, a wise purpose. Don't forget 
who is the God who made the promises. That God, that eternal, almighty God of grace, of love, who has shown himself to you in such a gracious and powerful and unmistakable way. That God is the one who has appointed your sufferings, and God never does anything without a wise purpose and plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we know it's purposeful because these sufferings are appointed by God and because of the nature of God who does nothing without a purpose and because of the other revelations of Scripture. Many, many texts, but probably the most familiar is Romans 8.28 that we all know. At least we can quote it. And what does it say? And we know that all things work together for good to those who are the called according to God's purpose, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. The same people are being talked to there that are being talked to here. Those who are the called according to God's purpose, those who have been called to his eternal glory. All things work together. God is working them together, working them perfectly according to his wisdom, according to his power. God is working everything in our lives for good. Who's good? You say, well, surely God's good, yes, but for our good. Your good, if you are a child of God. He's working everything together for your good. Your sufferings are purposeful. He has a wise purpose, a gracious purpose, a good purpose. He's doing good things through these sufferings. So what does God promise? Number one, that our sufferings are temporary. Number two, that our sufferings are purposeful. But number three, that our sufferings are divinely helped. And that's the bulk of the last part of the verse. The God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. God will do that. The Greek is even more emphatic. God himself will do this. God himself. It's emphatic. God is personally involved. God is overseeing all of this personally. He has you in his view. He has you in his scope. He's working on you and working all things for your good. God himself will do this. And then what follows are a series of four verbs that are very close synonyms. They're all in the future. This promise, the future is not, is is a bit vague as to exactly when this will take place. It can refer to time. It can refer to eternity. It can refer to both. And I think there are elements of this that apply to both. Some of these things God will do in time. Some of them he will do in eternity. Some of them are taking place even now in our lives during these days of suffering and others are going to be culminated when we are with the Lord in eternity. But one thing is sure is that God himself will do these things. He has promised to. And what will he do? Number one, perfect. Number two, establish. Number two, strength. Number three, strengthen. Number four, settle you. Number one, he will perfect you. He will perfect you. 
That's a verb that means to restore, to make complete, to make whole by ordering and arranging properly. It means to put things right. There's so much now that is wrong. But God promises to put everything right. Everything that's not right, He's going to make right. Everything that's out of order, God's going to put it back into order. Everything that is incomplete, God is going to make complete. Everything that has been damaged by sin and suffering, God is going to restore. He will perfect us. That's a word that is used elsewhere in the Bible of mending nets. The apostles who were mending their nets when Jesus came along. They were repairing the nets, restoring the nets that had been broken by use in fishing. And so they mended their nets. And we who have been broken by sin and suffering, God is going to mend us. And make us whole, make us new again. That's a word that is used of setting bones, bones that are broken. How many of you have ever had a broken bone? Good many of you. It hurts. It hurts when you get the broken bone. It hurts when they set the broken bone. It hurts. But aren't you glad that doctors can in most cases, set broken bones. And though it's painful to have the break and it's painful to apply the the uh, first step of the healing process, namely to set it. In fact, it hurts so much that sometimes they'll just put you under with anesthesia so you're not awake to feel the pain while this is going on. And they'll set that that bone. And then sometimes it hurts while it's mending. You can almost almost feel the... the uh, uh, cells coming together in that bone, and you're in, in a cast usually, and, and you can sometimes feel things going on in there as it's being mended. And that process sometimes is a bit uncomfortable too, though not usually as painful as the break or as the, the time when it's actually set. But all of that goes on over a period of time. But when it's all done, your bone is restored. In fact, they say that a broken bone, once it is healed properly, is probably stronger now than it was before. Well, that's what God is doing. He's mending every broken bone in your soul. He's restoring every area that has been damaged and hurt because of sin and because of suffering. God is perfecting. God has promised to do it. God will perfect you. He will complete what He has begun. Secondly, God will establish you. That's a word that means support you, to make you firm, to make you solid. It's the idea of a buttress. Some of the old cathedrals had flying buttresses. You know what they were? They were... Supports outside the walls that were built out to strengthen that wall so it wouldn't fall down. (laughs) 
And that's what God does to us in our time of need. He builds supports around us so that we don't fail, we don't crumble, we don't fall down. God builds buttresses around our souls. God builds buttresses around our inner man. God builds buttresses around our hurts, that which is damaged within us. God will establish us. God will strengthen us. That word means empower or part, impart strength in, to enable us to resist the attacks that come upon us and to persevere in the faith. God will strengthen us to enable us to do that. If it were up to us, our faith would fail every day. But God strengthens our faith so that it does not fail. Remember what Jesus said to Simon just before Simon denied him? He said, Simon, Satan has desired you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. If Jesus Christ had not come to Peter's aid, his faith would have failed. But it didn't. It couldn't. Because Peter was God's child. Called out of darkness into light. Called unto glory by the eternal omnipotent God. And because that was true, then God came to Peter's aid. He showed a great deal of weakness He showed a great deal of humanness. He showed a great deal of brokenness, just like many of us. He showed a great deal of cowardice. He showed a great deal of disappointing lack of of, uh, commitment and love and loyalty to Christ, all of those things. But Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Though you stumble, you will not fall. Though you, though you fall down, you will not stay down. I will pick you up. I am going to strengthen you so that you will persevere through every trial to the end. When the end comes, you'll still be believing Believing God, believing God's word, believing Jesus Christ, clinging to him. And nobody who ever was clinging to Christ ever went to hell. Nobody who ever was clinging to Christ ever failed to enter into glory. Nobody who was ever clinging to Christ ever was destroyed by trials and by sufferings. And God promises that he will strengthen us. And finally, he will settle us. That means place a foundation under us. To make us secure, to establish us. He will place a foundation under us, and that foundation, of course, is Christ. In short, here's what God promises. God will restore everything that is lost through suffering. In fact, God will restore everything that is lost in Adam's fall. And that's why we all suffer, is because we are all fallen sons of Adam. And that's why, in a real sense, it could be said that our sufferings are lifelong, because actually we come into this world in a broken condition. And we never completely leave that broken condition until we are with the Lord. That's when the final redemption takes place and all of the restoration is complete. 
And so God will restore everything that is lost through sin. God will restore everything that is lost through suffering. God will restore everything that was lost in Adam's fall. Some of it he will restore now. All of it he will restore at Christ's coming. And that's why we can know that our suffering is not only temporary, but we can know that all of the losses that are due to suffering will be fully and completely restored. How do I know it? Because God promised it right here in 1 Peter 5.10. The God who cannot lie promised it. And so that brings us finally to what should our response be? Verse 11. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What should our response be? Praise to such a God as this. This is a doxology of praise to him, the God who thus acts on behalf of his people. This is a praise of doxology to him because to him alone is due all praise. He is worthy of all of our praise all of the time. And it is especially fitting to praise Him when He has revealed Himself to us in specific examples of His wisdom, love, and power as He has in this text. And as He has in this epistle that Peter now concludes with this text. In spite of all of the difficulties and sufferings that you will experience, many of which have been described in this epistle, this is the conclusion of it all. Don't stop reading until you read this. God has promised to mend all the losses and to restore all the brokenness and to usher you into a greater glory than your mind can imagine. God has promised to do that for all of his believing children. Therefore, to him belong all the praise and the honor and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise to such a God as this and praise the power that guarantees the promises. The primary emphasis of this doxology in verse 11 is that word dominion. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Dominion means strength, power, unrivaled rule. God's dominion is God's ability to dominate, to subject everything to his purposes. To him is all the dominion. That means he has the power to dominate Every circumstance, every evil, every sinner, human or spirit, every demon, every devil, he has the power to dominate them all, to bring them all under control. When Peter wrote these words, it looked like Rome had all the dominion. They were pretty powerful at that time. They're just a puny nothing compared to the power of our God and the dominion that belongs to him. And so our praise is to the one who has the power to fulfill the promise. He made wonderful promises. Can he fulfill them? Absolutely he can because he has all the power. He has all the dominion. He has all the might. He has all the sovereign rule in the universe. In the universe, 
There's assurance for you. There's hope for you. There's reason to be filled with joy and confidence, not with despair. Could it be that the continuing decline that we see in the world around us, it looks like from a from a spiritual standpoint, a godly standpoint, everything is just getting worse and worse. Everything is just falling apart. This world is just falling apart. Why would God allow that? Could that be God's way of causing His children to love the world less and to long more greatly for His coming when He shall conspicuously exercise His dominion and power? We are taught to pray, Thy kingdom come. But sometimes we get so comfortable in this world, and God has blessed us so much, we really enjoy it. Thy kingdom come, but not right away. When I, when I die, I want, go, I want to go to heaven. But let's not be getting up a load right now. Sometimes God brings suffering so that our prayer is even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Come now. Come right away. I'm sick of this world. I'm tired of this world. There's nothing here anymore that holds me, that attracts me, that causes me to want to long to stay here, that wants me to see this condition last another day longer. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, and bring your righteousness, bring your justice, bring your power, dominate the situation, right every wrong, and bring your glory to bear upon this world again. Thy kingdom come. And it is exactly this suffering that brings us to the place where we truly long for that. And when you've said that, what else can you say but amen? So be it. That concludes the body of Peter's first epistle. And so here is hope. Here's assurance. Here's a promise we can rest upon. Assurance of future and eternal glory. Assurance of God's personal presence and unfailing aid in every trial. Assurance of significant spiritual good from all of our trials. Assurance of prescribed and minimal duration for all of our sufferings. Assurance of the indestructible and inseparable love of Christ for all of his people. Can you think of anything that's any better than that? From depths of woe he brought us. Through depths of woe he is even now bringing us to indescribable glory. He is taking us to him be the glory and dominion and praise forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray? O Lord God, you are a great God and worthy to be praised. You have blessed us in Christ Jesus with heavenly glories that are beyond our understanding. But what you have shown us 
is so beautiful, so wonderful, so attractive, that we are ashamed that we ever focused our eyes upon this world and longed for more of what this world has to offer when it is so flawed, so sinful, so broken, so corrupted. We praise and thank you for your grace. Help us, O Lord, to fix our eyes upon those things which are eternal and to never waver in believing your promises. As we ask it now in Jesus' name, amen.